Glasgow Women's Library. Mixing the colours, women speaking about sectarianism. Womenslibrary.org.uk The Colour of the Song by Morag Smith The girl behind the counter in the Winter Gardens Cafe is wiping a glass food display unit with one hand and texting with the other. Maureen breathes in the warm tropical dampness and the aroma of ground coffee and microwaved apple pie. Her dad wipes his steam off his glasses. Above them, palm trees and the creeping tendrils of exotic vegetation soar up towards the glass roof, wrapping themselves around the Victorian pillars and metalwork. There are only two other tables occupied, one by a couple with a baby dressed in a miniature Celtic strip and tiny green and white trainers, one by a middle-aged couple who sip their tea glumly with hats and scarves still on and coats fully buttoned despite the tropical temperature. Her dad sits at a table near the back, just on the edge of the network of condensation-drenched narrow pathways that lead into the jungle of plants, while she orders coffee for her, a mug of tea for him and a packet of ham sandwiches because she suspects he hasn't eaten lunch. When she sets the tray back in the table, he gets his wallet out and holds out a five-pound note. It's okay, Dad, really. Just take it. She puts it in her purse. So? He looks at her blankly, his eyes big and watery behind the new glasses. What? Have you thought about it? He looks puzzled for a moment, then winks. Only kidding. Yeah, I've thought about it. Told you I would. She can hardly believe her luck. So you fancy the flats then? He looks at her in total astonishment. Course I don't. That place is full of old people. And I like where I am. Do you not think it's a bit big for you now, Dad? You don't even get up the stairs anymore with your arthritis and your heart. Ah, you forgot my blood pressure. Listen, it's fine. I was upstairs just last week. Thought I'd check everything was okay after the men fixed the roof. You managed all right then? No problem at all. I made myself a flask of tea and some sandwiches just in case I got stuck. It was quite an adventure. He winks. She gives him a deadpan stare till he shrugs and starts fishing in his coat pocket. I found something when I was up there. Look. He hands her a dog-eared photograph. It smells of old wardrobes, mothballed best suits and shoeboxes filled with crumbling love letters. He's smiling and waiting. Remember, that day? She looks at it for clues. Her dad stands in the foreground, looking unbelievably youthful, sporting thick black hair and dressed in his standard holiday outfit of smart trousers and a spotless white shirt with the sleeves rolled up. His legs are planted wide apart and his arms hold Maureen's bare legs as she sits on his shoulders. She guesses she's about five years old, for her hair's blonde as it was when she was very young and there are gaps where her front teeth should be. She's wearing denim shorts and a bright yellow t-shirt. The top of her head is slightly cut off, so she knows it was her mother behind the camera. Well? He stabs at the top right-hand corner with his finger. What does that look like? She recognises the ornate castellated roofline of the Templeton's factory building, and in front of it the expanse of Glasgow Green, filled with people lying on the grass, women in flowery dresses, men in white shirts and blue trousers with white flashes down the side, the shape of a large drum, and in one corner a small bloody figure in a dark suit with an orange sash across his chest. Oh, it's the walk, isn't it? 
summer of 72. Brilliant day, that. It was one of the hottest days of the year. I know your mother didn't approve of the drinking and all that, but they were good times. It's an orange walk, Dad. Aye, I know, but they were happy days. Not for the Catholics who lived in the roots. No, but I mean, for us as a family. I can think of better family memories. He reaches over, takes the photograph, slips it back in his pocket. I'm just going to the gents. He stands abruptly, staggering slightly. Dad, are you okay? I'm fine. You're a fuss, just like she was. She watches him shuffling away and takes a bite of the sandwich. It's exactly the sort of unadorned white sliced and packet ham affair her mother would have made a dozen of for their July outings, accompanied, of course, by a bottle of ginger, boiled eggs that no one would eat, and golden delicious apples. They'd pack it all in the big tartan shopping bag, catch the bus to Bath Street in the city centre, then pick up the walk and follow it to its end at Glasgow Green. He used to lift her up on his shoulders above the crowd so she could see everything. Some of them were neighbours she recognised, but they looked different on this day, happier and more colourful with their uniforms or their Sunday best clothes and ribbons everywhere in orange, white, red and blue. They'd follow them to the green, where her mother would spread out the blanket on the grass, then they'd sit and listen to the strands of music from the different bands, while her dad wandered off looking for other men he knew, chatting and drinking a bit, though not as much as some. As the sun went down and it got too rowdy, they'd start to pack up, but he would grab her mum by the waist and say, come on, darling, a wee bit longer. She'd keep packing quietly, smoothing her skirt down, saying, it's time, John, you know it is. And they'd walk back to the bus stop, him still humming tunes, swinging her up onto his shoulders and dancing a jig in the pavement as they walked to the bus stop, while she screamed with delight, ignoring her mother's voice in the background. Careful, careful, watch the lassie. This was how it was always, her mother in the background and him full of jokes and songs. When he got home from work most nights, Maureen would wait patiently while they took off his boots, then fetched the penny whistle that he'd played in the bands when he was younger. His repertoire included folk songs, strange elaborate versions of hits by Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, and songs from the musicals. Occasionally he'd slip in band songs like Derry's Walls. She couldn't remember ever learning the lyrics, but she'd dance and stamp around the coffee table singing, We'll fight and not surrender, swinging an invisible mace around in the air until her mother shouted, Don't you start with those bloody orange tunes, Jim! He'd shrug and laugh. Ah, it's just a song. Then she'd stand in front of him, hands on hips, her face pink with fury. It's not the song that bothers me, it's the colour of the song. He'd be doubled up, helpless with laughter, but it would change anyway to something less inflammatory. He'd do magic tricks as well, twirl coins through his fingers or produce them from the back of her ear or her mother's hair, for which he always got hit with a fish slice or whatever other domestic implement was at hand. Maureen's favourite was when she'd stand behind the wall in the L-shaped room, far back from his chair, holding something, a favourite toy or a book, and he'd always guess what it was, even with his back to her. He knew when she was standing behind him, no matter how quiet or how far away she was. It was just some way he had of pretending to look straight ahead, but actually sliding his eyes around. But it seemed like magic to her. She'd ask, how did you know I was there? And he'd say... Remember, darling, I'm the man who can see round corners. A few years later, she'd worked out all the tricks and the July parades through the centre of Glasgow had become embarrassing. By the time she was 15, they argued about everything. 
newspapers, his clothes, hers, politics, religion, and the ethics of eating sausage, egg, and chips for dinner. This last one was usually the worst, with him thumping the table with his fist, her tipping the contents of the plate in the bin, and her mother retiring to the bedroom, grim-faced, saying, just let me know when the pair of you have finished. When she went to university, they reached an uneasy truce. In her second year, she moved out into a student flat. She still went home the odd weekend for Sunday dinner, but although she was only 20 minutes away, it felt like she was on another planet. Then, after her degree, she took a job in London. She still came home every Christmas, bearing expensive presents, a designer handbag for her mother, a rare malt whisky for him, which sat in the cocktail cabinet half-empty for years afterwards. Then, one summer, her friend Caroline sent her an invitation to her wedding in Edinburgh. She caught the train to Glasgow a few days early, thinking she could visit home and surprise them, then head east afterwards. It was early afternoon when she got to Central Station, and on a whim, instead of getting a taxi, she took the side exit and walked up Hope Street. It was a Saturday in July and the sun was shining, so the streets were filled with pale people in shorts, young guys stripped to the waist, crowds sitting drinking at tables which had been set up on the pavement outside dark shadowy bars, chatting and laughing, oblivious to the noise and smell of the double-decker buses wheezing their way towards Cowcaddens. As she walked slowly up the hill, thinking it was nice to be back, she was stopped by a crowd of shoppers gathered on the pavement. In front of them were the flashing lights of a police car. She thought at first it was an accident, but then realised the cars were moving, while behind them, coming slowly closer, was the faint sound of a drum banging out a rhythm. Even fainter behind that was the sound of tin whistles, and she recognised Derry's balls. Through the gaps in the crowd, she could see teenage boys in crisp white shirts and blue trousers with orange stripes down the side, marching up the hill, their shoulders held back, pride in the rhythm of the drum in every step, blowing away in unison on their whistles. Then came a group of four girls in blue miniskirts playing snare drums. A man in his twenties with bare chest and blue military trousers was swinging the mace, twirling it round and dancing about. He got a few cheers from the crowd, but most of them stood silently, waiting for it all to pass. A group of older men and women brought up the rear. She'd just edged forward to the front of the crowd and was wondering whether she should buy her mum some chocolates when she saw him right in the middle of the last row. He had on his best suit, the one he'd worn to her graduation, and over it was a sash. He was limping slightly on the left leg and flushed with the effort of keeping up, but he held his head up proudly, his chin jutting forward, staring straight ahead. The breath went out of her body. She wasn't sure if she'd actually said, no, Dad, or just thought it, but the woman standing behind her said, you're right, hen. They're a right bunch of idiots, aren't they? She shrunk back, trying to get away from the crowd before he saw her, turning and pushing her way through to the back of the crowd, where she ran into the first shop door she reached, then walked up and down the aisles, staring blindly at sets of holiday luggage and discount raincoats, while outside the bands played on, one fading away and another coming up behind them, time after time, tune after tune. When the drums were a distant rumble, she went outside again and called Caroline. She arranged to travel through to Edinburgh that afternoon and after the wedding went straight back to London. For years afterwards, 
She kept her home visits to Christmas and her mother's birthday in October. It might never happen, darling. He's sitting back at the table again, smiling at her over the top of a mug of tea. You were far away. She shrugs, saying nothing. The cafe is filled up with a Sunday afternoon crowd, a pensioner's coach party, cyclists in fluorescent lycra tops, families with young kids running round the steamy pathways that lead into the undergrowth of the greenhouse, and, at the table next to them, an older couple, a man and woman sharing a pot of tea. The man's hands are lumpy and swollen with arthritis. The woman lifts the teacup up, gently places his fingers on the handle, supporting it while he takes a sip, then letting it down again on the table. Her dad watches him. I still miss her, you know. I know you do. It should have been her that lived longer. Don't, Dad. He stands up, fumbling in his pockets, taking out wallet, keys, a packet of polements. We can get a taxi outside back to the house, then you can take it back to the station. You've got a family to get back to. You haven't even finished your tea. But he's already shuffling towards the front door. The couple with the baby are still there. He stops at the pram, smiling. The baby waves its arms and legs, gurgling ecstatically. The parents watch quietly, while he tickles its stomach. Come on, Dad. The woman has a strained smile on her face, but he's oblivious. You're a wee smasher, aren't you? You're going to play for Celtic when you're a big boy, then? Your dad got you down for trials already? Behind him, the man says, it's a girl. Her dad straightens up, turns round to him, nodding sagely. And a wee stunner she is too. She takes his arm. Come on, Dad. When they get to the taxi rank, she says, I thought he was going to thump you. You should have seen his face when you had your back to him. Ach, I was just being friendly, poor Wayne. And I knew fine well what his face was like. Remember, darling, I'm not that old and daft. I can see more than you think. He gives her a sharp look. The taxi pulls up behind him. Without looking round, he said, Your carriage awaits, madam. He's silent for most of the journey. Then, just as they turn into the street, he says, Maybe I'll go on that waiting list for the flats after all. Are you sure? He nods. I just didn't want to give up the house, but it's all I've got left of her. But you have to change and move on sometimes, don't you? You've got the memories, Dad. He gives her a look and snorts with laughter. Memory is treacherous. Who said that? No idea. He sniffs. I thought you were an intellectual. It was Jean-Paul Sartre. She nods dutifully. I'm impressed. He strokes his hair back, as though he were still slicking it with brill cream. History of philosophy, part one, at Milton Community Education Centre. See, I don't just sit there drinking whiskey. He reached into his, into his pocket and pulls out his wallet. Don't come in. Joseph's coming up tonight for a wee dram and you have to get back. Here. She accepts the proffered £10 note, knowing better than to argue. She makes him promise that he will only get a half bottle of whisky for Joseph and him, and this time, if Joseph turns blue, he'll call an ambulance rather than pouring him another glass. He's just about to close the taxi door when she sees it lying in the seat, the picture he'd pulled out earlier. Dad, you dropped this. She holds it out to him, but he shakes his head. You keep it. I don't want it anymore. Their eyes meet, he winks. I changed my tune in 1985. What do you mean? He doesn't reply, just shuts the door and opens his garden gate, waving over his shoulder. The driver says, Central Station, is it? 
He pulls off without waiting for an answer. She unfolds the picture and looks again at the flashes of orange, the bright green grass of the park, the deep blue of the sky. She remembers her mother telling her that he'd given up the marching. At the time, she said coldly, good, not bothering to ask why, not thinking it had anything to do with her. But it would have been about 1985, just after the summer of Caroline's wedding in Edinburgh. She hears the old songs playing in her head again, the ones she'd danced to around the coffee table, and she's back there again at the corner of Hope Street and Sucky Hall Street, with the band thumping its way through Derry's walls. Her dad is walking in time to the music, his chin held high, looking straight ahead, and she's shrinking back through the crowd, thinking he hasn't seen her. The streets of her childhood flash past outside the taxi window, and she realises then it's her who's daft. It's her who's forgotten that he is, and always was, the man who can see round corners.